Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 121. We have had just a wonderful framework this morning for our worship, uh, making uh, even more use of the Psalms than sometimes we do. Uh, we began with Psalm 150, and then our first hymn uh, based on Psalm 90, and in uh, the opening prayer, Psalm 18 was reflected upon, and then the choir sang Psalm 23, and then we heard Psalm 121 sung. How, how appropriate, though, as the Psalms uh, bring out a, a rich opportunity for worship, as they touch life the way it really is, the kinds of things that we face but then bring us to the nature of God and who He is and what that means to us. And uh, this psalm before us today is no different from that. But uh, I hope we just continue to gain a greater and greater appreciation for uh, the richness of the psalms and you use them every day in your worship as you read them and uh, even use them in prayer. To God. When our children were younger, uh, twice a year we would go back to the St. Louis area where we had uh, family. And uh, often we would travel during the night, and it would be the sun would be rising when uh, we would be approaching St. Louis, or if it was uh, during the day, what we would do, because they were always anxious to get there. And when we got close, we would tell them, let's see who can be the first one to see the arch. Uh, that would keep them occupied for a while. And then uh, whenever one of them saw the arch, as we were traveling from east to west, and we saw that gateway to the west, there'd be excitement. And they'd know that we were almost there. And uh, we were all relieved at that point, believe me, not just the children, but uh, Connie and I as well. Uh, this psalm that we have before us is a psalm that in some ways uh, parallels that moment when they would see the arch and there'd be celebration. It is sometimes called a pilgrim psalm or a psalm of ascent. Faithful Jews uh, each year would make a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem for the annual feasts. Now, remember, in that day, there were no roads as we think of them, uh, uh, though there were some, but not necessarily from where they were going to Jerusalem. And so some would be uh, traveling on well-worn paths, Others would be making their own paths. And then there would come that time. That time when they would either see Jerusalem or maybe the, the mountains surrounding and this psalm and other psalms of ascent were what they would then burst into in praise of God. And they would sing, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, now we would ask that you would use this psalm, which are your words, words that you gave to your people to praise you, to speak of you, and that you saw fit to preserve for us. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would help us to understand what those words meant to them in that day, but what they mean for us today and tomorrow and the next day and the rest of this week. We ask that you would be our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's jump right in and uh, see in this psalm how uh, the psalmist begins with the need for help. The believers need for help. Look at the first verse. I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now you might say, you know what, that doesn't fit with how I memorized it when I was younger or when I was a kid or maybe, and and it isn't really the first way I memorized it either. Some of your versions may say, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? And the implication there is that our help is somehow in those hills. But I don't believe that's what the psalmist was saying. A couple of possible interpretations. One is maybe they were looking at Jerusalem, which as the city of God represented God. And they they said, yeah, that's... That's uh, uh, where I'm looking for help. But I think there's a better explanation. I think the rest of the psalm confirms this. I think, and this is uh, the interpretation I would lean toward, that the psalmist was contrasting where other people were looking for their help. Let me explain. The Canaanites had their high places up in the mountains, up in the hills. And that would be where they would set up their altars. They made idols. They would set those up and they would worship them. All manner of immorality. You name it, it went on there in the name of worship because they didn't know the true and the living God. And so when they talk about the hills, 
the psalmist, I believe, is saying, I look up at those hills, but where does my help come from? Implying it's not that. What kind of help was he looking for? Well, you see a a number of things here. Last weekend we were in uh, the mountains and if you walk any of the paths there, you've uh, and all of you have done this at some point, you understand exactly what, uh, what it's talking about here. For those on a pilgrimage, uh, verse 3, it says, He will not let your foot slip. How easily that happens, literally speaking, when you're walking on rocky ground and, and so on, and uh, the danger of turning an ankle or even breaking a leg, and that's real danger when you're out in the wilderness. Uh, so it... it uses that phrase, and then the sun will not harm you by day. Well, again, in that part of the world especially, not that I think it can be a whole lot hotter than here, but, uh, but in that part of the world, the idea of being out with, uh, without protection, out under the sun and the dangers of that. One of my professors when I was in seminary was an archaeologist, and uh, every summer he would go over and they would do these digs, and they would get up long before the sun came up. And they would start their day, and they would end their day sometimes mid-morning because of uh, the heat of the day there, how intense it, it really was. So there's real danger there. So the sun will not harm you by day. And then it says, nor the moon by night. Now you may say, well, what in the world? Uh, you know, what's, what's the moon uh, who, who thinks of that in terms of their, their being harm? But the people of that day, these ancient writers, often would equate emotional illness, emotional distress with moonstroke. It's not a myth. That's what they equated. That's where we get our term lunacy. So that's the idea here. It's talking about more of some other kind of a a stress, emotional, uh, uh, rather than a physical kind of thing. Now, let's face it. Typically, especially those first two, those aren't things that we pray a lot about. Please don't let my foot slip, at least in terms of uh, normally speaking. That's not a a big one of our prayers or uh, help me to endure this sun and so on. So what we need to say is, well, what, what, how would we update this? What's this mean to us? Well, certainly those first two are physical aspects. And so it's talking about anything physical from an injury to a disease to some kind of a crime inflicted against us. And we tend to take precautions but ultimately, is there a guarantee? And then there's the emotional distress, the, the idea of uh, the moon not harming us. Certainly those are issues, and we may try to take precautions, but is there a guarantee, is there, that we won't have these things? Or is there? It seems like this psalm promises that we won't. And maybe as I read it, 
you said, you know, I wish that were true, but I, I don't get it. That's not my experience that I've been kept from all harm or those around me have. Let's move on. We're going to come back to that question. Look at the believer's search for help. It says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, notice how he describes God. There's so many ways that uh, he could have described him. And when you're talking about help, why would he not say, my help comes from God the sovereign one? or the all-powerful, the omnipotent one, or all-knowing, or all-wise, or loving one. Why does he talk about him being the maker of the heaven and the earth? Well, this is something else I think that confirms that he's making a contrast here. He's saying, look, the other people's help is in the earth. It's in earthly things. It's in things that people have made with their own hands. They made those idols. They made those altars. That's where their help is, but not me. Not me. It's not about the things I can make or the things this world can make, but it's in the maker himself. Think of a current financial problems in our country. Where are people turning? What are the hills that they are turning to? It's an article in Kiplinger's uh, personal finance. And it talked about uh, where people turn during times like this. It said this, when storm clouds gather over the economy, People often seek shelter in a glass of whiskey, a pack of cigarettes, or a green blaze, or the green blaze of a roulette table. That's why many financial advisors are telling clients to invest in sin as a bulwark against a possible recession. And then it goes on with the stats back in uh, during the recession of 2000 to 2002, how uh, you know m- the broader stocks were tumbling by 47%, and casino and gaming stocks grew 115%. Now, I'm not telling you how to invest here, okay? I don't want you to, that be your takeaway from this sermon. What I do want you to see, though, is that's the kind of thing people go for. That's the hills that people are running for book of Jeremiah, there's an interesting verse that answers that. It gives the right perspective. In Jeremiah 3, it says, surely the idolatrous commotion, and in those hills there was commotion, there was, there was noise, there was, as I said, all manner of immorality in the name of worship. Surely the idolatrous commotion in the hills and the mountains is a deception. You see what it's saying? The things that they're finding when they get up there are a mirage. It doesn't help them for any length of time. 
They go to the commotion. They think there'll be some comfort here. Just like people during times of distress, they find or they make their own hills here in our country. And what they find is an illusion. It's not there. It doesn't help. The psalmist declares, the real help is from the maker of the heavens and the earth. But that's here where we get a little problem. There's some pretty bold statements here. How do we deal with them? Look at the help he he says he gives. Verse 3, he will not let your foot slip. Verse 5, he is your shade at your right hand. Verse 6, the sun will not harm you. Verse 7, he will keep you from all harm. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. So, should we conclude that if you're really a believer, you will not have issues of physical problems, no disease, no accidents, nothing that goes on that we have to face? If you're a real believer, should we conclude that you won't have any emotional distress or other kinds of stresses? It seems like that's what the psalm is saying. You know, you would think, though, that if that were what he was saying, that surely he would protect his own apostles. Listen to what Paul went through. He says this, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. That was Paul. So we have several choices. Either all the people that have troubles are not Christians, including Paul, or God doesn't do what he says he will do in this psalm and in other places in the psalms, or there's some other explanation. Well, the first two choices are impossible. We know that. So, what does he mean by keeping us from all harm? Well, first of all, what it's not. This is not the health and wealth gospel. In other words, uh, the, the gospel that you can turn on your TV and, and uh, see 
all of the time where uh, various preachers will say, God wants you well. He doesn't want anything bad ever to come into your life. You will never face trials if you are faithful. That's simply not what this is. He does not somehow usher us into a protective bubble where we will always be free from illness, from any kind of stresses. Eugene Peterson put it this way, The Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord. It's not a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare our blue ribbons and gold medals with others who have made it to the winner's circle. So what is it? Well, Eugene Peterson again. He says the Christian life is going to God. But in going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens of the same government, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, and are buried in the same ground. The very existence of this psalm that says, my help comes from the Lord, tells us we need help. The very fact that he says, he will watch over you, tells us we need to be watched over. So the implication is, though you're a believer, you will face difficulties. Think of the promises. He'll keep us from all harm. He'll watch over our lives. He'll watch over our comings and goings, both now and forevermore. So how do we deal with it? Let's go back to the Apostle Paul. Remember all of the things he went through. How does he put that into perspective? I've been through all of these things. He then says in Romans 8, and we know that all things, all those things, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. What then... Shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Did you catch that? His own son went through trials. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Christ Jesus, who died, this is key. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, with that as the context, then he asks the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the ultimate harm there, being separated from the love of Christ. Who shall separate us? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So where's the protection come from? He just stated it. Christ Jesus, who died for us, was raised to life, is at the most important place in the universe for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for us. The psalm says, he never slumbers or sleeps. I often read this to people before they go into surgery. You know, when they're going to be slumbering and sleeping, that God is not. Remember what in the Old Testament, the prophets of Baal, what they had to do before anything would happen? We got to wake up, Baal. And that's the contrast between the hills and the true and the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. He never slumbers or sleeps. Stephen, at the most traumatic moment of his life, when he was being stoned to death for proclaiming the gospel, it says this, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's at his post. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now that's the picture of one who faced some of the very worst Uh, things that this fallen world has to offer. And he basically said, bring it on. You can destroy this flesh, but you cannot harm me. This world can destroy our flesh but He will keep us from being separated from the love of God, which is the ultimate harm. Because the Lord is watching over my coming and going both now and forevermore. That's what it is to trust in Christ alone for our eternal life. That's what Psalm 121 tells us. Let's bow together.